This will be my last reflection on the historical critical method or higher criticism before moving on to other concerns and questions regarding the Bible, the book God breathed. Matters that are, I think, more directly related to the spiritual quest. I've been talking here mainly about non-confessing Bible scholars and theologians and their use of the historical critical method in analyzing scripture. But now I want to turn to C.S. Lewis, whose primary training, experience, and expertise was actually that of literary criticism and analysis. Lewis's whole life, from the time he was a child, was consumed by a passion for literature, especially poetry and myths and legends. His early education was followed uh, followed the, the classical model, so that as a young boy he was reading Latin and Greek, his entire vocation, his life's work, was as an Oxford don, a literature professor at Oxford University, except for a short interval teaching at Cambridge, two of the most academically prestigious universities in the world. As a university student, he earned three firsts at Oxford University, one in the classics, Greek and Latin literature, one in philosophy and ancient history, called at that time the greats, and one in English literature. If there is anyone who has ever known anything about literary analysis, it was C.S. Lewis. In his essay, Fernseed and Elephants, Lewis references uh, a New Testament scholar who, applying the principles of higher or literary criticism to the Gospel of St. John, argued that John is a kind of spiritual romance, that's, that's its genre, a, 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 a kind of poem, somewhat like Pilgrim's Progress, a dream detached from reality. An annoyed Lewis responded by noting that this Bible scholar, in reading the gospel according to John, has missed John's simple, down-to-earth, realistic detail. He quotes this verse from John, John 13.30. As, <clears throat> as soon as Judas had taken the bread, he went out, and it was night. And then Lewis writes this, I have been reading poems, romances, vision literature, legends, myths all of my life. I know what they are like. I know that not one of them is like this. Either this is reportage, though it may no doubt contain errors. Portage, pretty, reportage pretty close to the facts, or else some unknown writer in the second century, without known predecessors or successors, suddenly anticipated the whole technique of modern novelistic realistic narrative. In this essay, Fernseed and Elephants, 
Lewis also noted this second example from Rudolf Bultmann's book, Theology of the New Testament. In that book, Bultmann asked his readers to, quote, observe in what unassimilated fashion the, per- the prediction of the parousia, Mark 8.38, follows upon the prediction of the passion, Mark 8.31, unquote. Bultmann assumes, presupposes, believes that the prediction of the second coming of Christ, the Borussia, has to be older than the prediction of Christ's passion, the week of his suffering, crucifixion, and resurrection. So this text, he thought, shows a discrepancy. Things are, in Boltman's opinion, out of order, uh, or to use his word, unassimilated here, showing that some ancient editor or redactor had been at work altering, changing, modifying things. Somehow, Boltman cannot see what most ordinary readers have always easily recognized. The text fits together and flows, is, in fact, assimilated, just as it is. I can easily put it into uh, uh, a a simple four-point outline. One, Peter confesses Jesus as the Messiah. It is a glorious moment of spiritual recognition in heaven and on earth, and a wonderful credit to, to Peter personally. Two, in marvelous contrast, a contrast of life and death and hope and despair, no sooner has Peter uttered his happy confession than Jesus' dark prophecy of suffering and death begins. Three, the contrast between hope and despair, life and death, uh, is then repeated. Peter protests here that Jesus, on whom all their hopes depend, must not embrace suffering and death. And Jesus rebukes him for it. Get behind me, Satan, says Jesus. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Four, then Jesus turns to the people in general and provides the moral or spiritual singularity of this whole masterfully constructed scene, namely that all of Jesus' followers must take up their cross and follow him. In the Jesus way, suffering is not to be avoided, but embraced in a way that transforms it and transforms everything else as well. Lewis therefore wrote, in conclusion, logically, emotionally, imaginatively, the sequence is perfect. Only a Boltman could think otherwise. Lewis is, of course, impressive not only because of his personal academic credentials and professional experience, which give him 
an expertise in textual analysis unequaled by anyone else, but also because of his own prodigious work as an author and his working associations and friendships with other significant authors like J.R.R. Tolkien and Carlos Williams. Lewis said that what he and his writer friends had discovered is that most reviews of their work were taken up with just what most biblical criticism is taken up with. That is, imaginary descriptions and fanciful explanations of the process by which a book or a story was produced. Reviewers, Lewis said, both friendly and hostile, will dash off such histories with great confidence, will we'll, we'll tell you that what public events directed the author's mind to this or that, what other authors had influenced him or her, what his overall intention was, what sort of audience the author principally addressed, why and when everything the author did was done. This is precisely what the historical critical method, um, what higher criticism claims it can do in its literary analysis of the Bible. Lewis's counter is that contemporary criticism of living and working authors furnishes us with a kind of Uh, laboratory in which the claims of higher criticism can actually be tested, and what has been pragmatically demonstrated over and over again, what has been demonstrated repeatedly is that whether as literary or source or form or redaction or historical critical method, higher criticism or whatever you want to call it, simply cannot do what it claims it can do. Lewis certainly did not claim that the Bible is inerrant, or that various sources, both written and oral, had not been used, or that editing was not involved in the composition of the Bible. And neither is this my own argument. What I would contend positively and I think this is in agreement with C.S. Lewis and other classical Christians, is that the mystery of God is to be encountered in the Old and New Testaments, that major historical events reported in the Bible and by which Judaism and Christianity justify their existence actually occurred in time and space. I think the scholar and historian Thomas Cahill was entirely correct when he wrote this of the Old Testament or Hebrew scriptures. Cahill wrote, The text of the Bible is full of clues that the authors of the Bible are attempting to write history of some sort. Of course, as we read the patriarchal narratives of Genesis or the escape from Egypt narratives of Exodus, we know we are not reading anything with the specificity of 
a history, say, of Franklin Delano Roosevelt's presidential administration. The people who constructed these biblical narratives did not, like Doris Kearns Goodwin, the famous uh, presidential uh, historian who wrote of FDR, have access to the card catalog of the Library of Congress or the resources of the Internet. They had heard the story they were writing down had received it from an oral culture, had in fact received it in two or three variant forms in the varieties we would expect of tales sold over and over down the centuries at one caravan site after another. But there is in these tales a kind of specificity, a concreteness of detail, a concern to get things right that convince us that the writer has no doubt that each of the main events chronicled happened. More than this, that they happened, that God spoke to Avraham and told him to leave summer for the unknown, that God spoke to Moses, Moshe, and told him to lead the Israelites out of Egypt is the whole point. These are not like, says Cahill, Gilgamesh, archetypal tales with a moral at the end. They share nothing essential with other ancient myths from Gilgamesh to Aesop to Grimm's fairy tales. If the stories of Cupid and Psyche or Beauty and the Beast never happened in real time, no one is the poor for that. But if Avraham and Moshe never existed, or if they did not receive their commission from God. Their stories have no point at all. Nor does the genetic collection known as the Jewish people, nor do Christians or Muslims, who also count themselves as heirs of Avraham. Literary criticism, then. Well, the whole historical critical method at its best represents more something more like artistic skill than scientific procedure. It has no universally accepted set of principles or techniques that are capable of rendering reliable and consistent results. For reasons I have already noted, as well as others, I think that while aspects of higher criticism can be helpful, that ultimately it simply lacks the means to do what it claims it can do. It cannot, I assert, in the strongest possible terms, determine precisely how and why, uh, to what purpose a text was originally composed, nor can it discover the hidden intentions of an author, nor whether there was one or two or three or ten authors or sources. There's one more observation I will make regarding the historical critical method, and it is this. In nearly every case where scholars are eager to make weighty pronouncements, the reality is that they simply do not have enough information to do so. That is, they have no way of knowing what they do not know, but need to know. When scholars observe 
that a paragraph in a text would have, in their opinion, fit better five paragraphs earlier, they may think it indicates a different author. But it may only be that a writer uh, remembered something um, meant to be said earlier but forgot and has now worked it in the best they could. They were, after all, not using a Toshiba PC or an Apple Pro book that allowed them to cut and paste and rearrange at will. There are simply too many unknown variables, including the variable of pure accident. Now, for the fundamentalists, there really are no variables. And so the tactics of the non-confessing scholars work pretty well on them. But classical Christianity rejects the rigid thinking of both right and left-wing fundamentalist. I suppose this, uh, and, and by that I mean um, uh, scholars, whether confessing or non-confessing, who are overly obsessed with uh, what is factual. I suppose this occupies my mind so much because I have so often seen the faith of good and devout Christians undermined by supposed scholarship, by trickle-down notions that are beyond substantiation. In my next podcast, I will reflect on what it means to say the Bible is the Word of God and what that has to do with the spiritual quest.